Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode five, where we're traveling to the year of 1947 and the fifth winner and the best of the Pulitzer Prize winner in, in <laughs> we music. Tell where this is going early on. <laughs> Charles E. Ives for his Symphony Number no. Three, The Camp Meeting. All right, Dave. So, do I need to even ask what are your experiences with Charles Edward Ives? <laughs> well, this is going to be tough. So, the, the, the backstory, if you don't know us, uh, Ives is my main area of research and my scholarship. So uh, Andrew's job in this episode is going to keep me, keep the reins uh, go on here. You so all I, thank us for post-production. Yes, for post-production. <laughs> thank you, Tristan. Uh, so experiences with Ives. It actually goes back to when I was a sophomore, I guess sophomore, taking music history at the University of Illinois. And... I was suddenly surprised to learn when we got to the 20th century that there was actually an American composer hmm. and one who wrote very unusual sounding music and had all these borrowed tunes and why are there pieces with hymns in them and what's this trumpet doing and unanswered question. It was just like a different, like a revelation. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, there's a, an American composer who's seen as on par with the European ones at the time. And at that point, it just became an obsession with me to learn more about Ives. And then when I was a senior, the sadly deceased Lawrence Gushy Mm -hmm. uh, taught an Ives seminar. I forget what the number was at U of I, but it was seminar in the works of a selected composer. And it was a summer class. And I was a senior and I sat in, asked if I could sit and I'd taken a couple classes with him. And he said, sure. So I sat in a summer class and... Just it all took off from there, and so then all my dissertation work and publications and everything—it's just been. And now it's I teach. Ives. Yeah, it's been Ives, and I've taught a class at uh, UMKC. Now I've taught two Ives seminars, and each time I learn so much. And I'm actually my spring break. This is really geeky. Uh, <laughs> my spring break is going to be an Ives pilgrimage tour this year. I'm going to Danbury, Connecticut, and then I'm going to New Haven. And then Concord, Massachusetts, and Boston. So you take your headphones and listen in each of those places. Oh yes, okay, of I course figured. I am. Of course, it's going to be a whole Ives themed <laughs> driving tour in my rental car. So we'll have pictures on the Facebook yes. and Twitter feed, so everyone can follow along with. Yes, Dave Thurmeyer's Ives adventure. Yeah. So people go to Cancun. You go to Danbury, Connecticut. I go to Danbury, Connecticut, yeah. because the last time I was there to see his house, which is now in bad. Re- bad need of repair, and it is being repaired. Uh, I was a college student. I've seen the picture. Yes. Yeah, there's a picture of me on Facebook standing at Ives' house, and uh, it's it was a big deal. I mean, that's... And to, even today, to think about it, you know, I, I we have so many colleagues who work mm-hmm. on European music, and to the fact that you can just take a quick plane ride to Connecticut and see some of what Ives lived right. uh, is, is still exciting to me. So. Yeah. How about yourself? What's your Ives experience? Well, it sounds like for you, the unanswered question was the piece. Was uh, that the first? Because that, that for me was the yeah, first piece. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think I suppose it was because I, I was, was in a, the anthology or something. Yeah, and yeah. I think I was a sophomore, I think, mm-hmm. in uh, undergraduate and going, I had no idea what to make of this music. Yeah. Because uh, it was unlike anything else I'd ever heard. 
And then when I was a senior, I took a class with uh, W. Francis Macbeth, the composer, mm -hmm. who studied with Howard Hansen, who we talked just briefly about. Uh, but anyway, in that class, he talked about Ives as kind of the father of us all. That everyone, yeah. If you're an American composer, you spring in some way from Charles Ives. And I was like, okay, who is this guy? And then the story. I mean, we'll get to his oh, life. Yeah, but the life. The, yeah. the life is just fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I went to graduate school, also at the University of Illinois, um, I took an Ives seminar with Bill Brooks. Yes, and, also one of my theory teachers. Yep, yeah. and Bill brought out, you know, just manuscripts because he was working on the first movement of the Fourth Symphony, mm -hmm. I believe, the critical edition, and just just displayed all this stuff, and I was just fascinated to look and see just the, the messiness of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and just how much he worked and cut and paste. I mean, he would have gone crazy with Microsoft Word, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that was kind of my experience, and so now I'm... I love the music. I teach the music all the time. Although now I just have you come in and teach the music so I can get a break for my classes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, I think we can safely say that both of us were excited when we started this project for the Ives Day that we could begin to talk about this piece. Yes, absolutely. And one of the fascinating things about it is it's actually the first, and I don't know, we'll find out if it's the only, but uh, maybe not, but it's the first piece that was not written anywhere near right. when it was given the award. Uh, all the other pieces we've talked about so far have been in the year in the year yeah. that they got the award. But this this goes back. Well, uh, Ives' dating is always very difficult to determine, but at least forty years, thirty to forty years from when it actually got the award. So, well, let's start there. Why don't we? Yeah, jump into the first section of who was Ives. Telling the story. So who was Charles Ives? Well, that's it's. It, huh. I don't even know where to begin. I mean, the the quick story Cliff is version. the Cliff Nose version. So, born in Danbury, Connecticut, in eighteen seventy four, the same year as Arnold Schoenberg, who would be almost his exact contemporary and uh, an admirer. Uh, but growing up in small town New England and having a father who was a Civil War bandmaster, who was had an experimental bent and was kind of seen as the black sheep of the Ives family, which was pretty distinguished in Danbury in the banking industry and finance. Uh, but he, he instilled this whole idea on Ives of experimentation and just, just following your muse. And so then Ives played the organ for many years in the, in churches growing up and in high school was quite a well-known organist in the area, went off to Yale studied with Horatio Parker, the great uh, American composer and, and composer who'd studied in Germany. And he insisted, he and Ives had some fights about... I can only imagine. Yes, I wish I could have been <laughs> Ives a was fly quite on the, the irascible fellow. Yes, yes, about what was real music. And, you, and Parker said, you have to learn the European tradition, learn form, learn counterpoint. Ives complained about it, but was very happy later that he did. And so then he got a degree from Yale and wanted to become a composer and had some lukewarm reviews and it didn't work out so well. And so he ended up going into the insurance business, which is the fascinating That's the, that's part. the story that everyone knows is yeah. he uses the Yale connections, just like someone would today. He yes. uses the Yale connections to get a job in insurance and becomes quite wealthy yes. through insurance. Quite wealthy and still unknown. So right. not known as a composer, yet he continued to write all this music. And so wrote, it was evenings, weekends, yes. vacations. Yeah, he wrote all the time. And then it wasn't until the 20s, well, he would try to get his music played, but people would say it was too hard, it was too ugly. 
Uh, it was just not not real music. And he uh, would give it away. And give it away to people. Yeah, and self-publish everything. He self-published the Concord Sonata, uh, self-published the 114 songs, and just gave it to people, gave it to friends. And then it wasn't until, like we mentioned, the 20s, 30s, where people started to notice him, and he had friends like Henry Cowell. And... Well, that was when he had basically stopped composing. Yes, yes. He had a big heart attack in, or and maybe other things, diabetes and other illnesses, in 1918, 1919, and kind of slowed down uh, big time on his compositional output and wrote, he did, he did continue to write. That's not a, it's a myth that he just gave up and stopped. Right. Uh, he wrote Psalm 90, for example, after that, re, re, revised it. other pieces, mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, it really wasn't until he got some people to, to notice him and that he became what he was and then he would continue to bankroll like the the journal new music which is incredibly important for american experimental music in the 20s with henry cowell in 30s uh ives bankrolled a lot of that and supported a lot of the music and the composers so he was very philanthropic to the cause uh, but it makes this interesting uh, situation that you alluded to earlier where these pieces that were composed in the early part of the 20th century, aren't heard until 20, 30 years later. Right. So when was this piece composed? Well, that's, that's as we mentioned, that's mentioned hard earlier, to, it's hard to say yeah, hard because to I was, was notorious about having, well, if you're Maynard Solomon, you thought it was deliberate, but other people think he had just forgot dates and was, if you look at his manuscripts, they're a mess. Uh, but a lot of this piece, the Third Symphony, came from organ pieces that were probably written in the early, when he was still an organist, so mm -hmm. in the early few years of the 20th century, so 1901 to 1904. Uh, it wasn't published until much later, but around the teens is mm -hmm. kind of when people say that it actually actually came together came together yeah and then yeah. it isn't performed until 1947 so 1947 yeah so exactly. we have 30 or even 40 years between conception and the yeah. public hearing it which is kind of insane it is it is so this is i think what do you do you think people knew i mean people certainly knew of ives by that point in fact bernstein's first performance of uh Symphony Number no. Two was in 1951, I believe. So it was coming. It, that, that this really helped push him along. But what do you think people thought of Ives at that time? That here, here's this guy who's unknown and wrote this music so long ago, and right after Schumann and Copland and Sowerby, who were active composers, and here's Ives, who's like an old man. Well, point. not just an old man, but also not tied in. So we've been talking mm. a lot about how the, the composers who have been winning from the first four awards that we've yeah. looked at, all of them were very tied in and connected to each other. So mm -hmm. they supported each other, and it, it became kind of this old boys network. It's like, all right, it's Aaron's turn, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's William's turn, whatever. Yeah. But Ives is not in there. So mm -hmm. he's coming out from left field to win this award. And so it's not just, I think, that the age, it's the fact that he was just not in the scene. No. And it, it's fascinating to think about some of the other winners, the previous winners, did uh, support Ives. Actually, Hansen recorded a lot of Ives' music, and mm -hmm. Copeland wrote a very famous essay about his songs where he's kind of backhanded compliments <laughs> and sort of like, well, I guess some of them are okay, but they're a little amateurish in some ways. So they, they did, and Schumann, uh, arranged very famously the variations right. on America 
And so they were big fans of Ives, but you're right. He's, he's, he's a different generation. He's, he's almost two generations, two generations from apart. And just in terms of the music. Mm-hmm. But then if you listen to the music though, I think it's one of those things that it sounds current in 1947, yeah, even though it was composed 35 years earlier, it still sounds like it was composed in 1947. Definitely. It really fits, which is a testament to Ives's skill and craft that it still well, it didn't sound dated right. particularly, even though it was very yeah, quite old by that point. But it's also of the age. Yeah. Which is also, I think, a, a fascinating thing. And we'll get to that when we talk about the piece uh, mm-hmm. itself. Let's talk a little, little bit about how it actually got to be performed, because I think this is a fascinating story. Because, right, it's here. It's No one knows about it. Um, people know who Ives is. They're beginning to know who Ives is. But they don't know particularly um, this Third Symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, whenever it was premiered, the uh, reviewer in Musical America wrote, Ives' Third Symphony, which lay neglected in a barn in Connecticut for 40 years. <laughs> so that was part of the appeal, I think, to people. It was like, look, we're rediscovering this yes. American musical past. And I think a lot of composers at the time thought, there's really nothing good that we can go back to. But mm-hmm. now here's a composer they can go back to. Mm-hmm. And th- this is a very complicated situation that, that my... V- dissertation advisor, J.D. Peter Burkholder, talks a lot about, and, and many people discuss this, but uh, there's a great story that goes along with this piece that relates to a very famous European composer. In fact, the story goes when Mahler came to the United States and conducted the New York Philharmonic, that he saw the Third Symphony there, and he looked at it and was very excited by what he saw, and the story goes that he took it back to Austria and was really ecstatic about it and wanted to perform this piece, but then he died. So this was 1911. This was 1911, <laughs> yes. So imagine what the course of history would have been if Mahler had taken this piece by this unknown American composer and exposed it to the world with his heft. I mean, that's that's this whole idea of a European kind of right. bringing an American to Putting light. that stamp of culture Putting on that it. stamp of culture, <laughs> right, right. And it, it would have been a very interesting thing to... Well, it would have changed the course of Ives' career. Yeah, yeah. Everyone would have known about him 30 years before. Yes, while he, he was really, still writing music, While too. he was still writing music. And it would have probably changed the music that he wrote because he might yeah. have started getting commissions. All right, that's a... Oh, if. it could have been. <laughs> I know, it's fascinating. But that's that's another thing about this piece, why it's so mm-hmm. important. Right. So Lou Harrison, mm-hmm. American composer, do you know how he found the piece? Uh, well, yes, actually, if I remember correctly, that I've, he, he wrote, he knew of Ives and sent him a letter saying, send me some music to perform. I want to perform and study it. Is that kind of what? That's kind of, yeah, what yeah. I kind of have heard about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he decided to premiere it in April 5th, 1946. Yes. And you have the program of what else was performed on that concert. It's a fascinating group of pieces that were yeah collected here with the third symphony so the first thing to know about this piece is it's a chamber piece too it's a chamber orchestra it's right. not a not a big so much then, smaller much smaller which i mean copeland we had his 13 piece group and sourby was the big choir and well most of the pieces that we've yeah, heard of the been, polls have been big pieces big pieces howard hansen symphony but this is this was premiered by the new york little symphony it's a great name it's a great name at <laughs> carnegie chamber music hall and so we have a Harry Hewitt, Prelude to Spoon River. Do you know who Harry Hewitt was? I don't know who Harry Hewitt was. No. Alexei Hayef, Divertimento. Okay, two for two here. Arthur Berger, 
who I know is more of a theorist for writing about Stravinsky, mm -hmm. but Capriccio. Then one of our favorites of all time, Carl Ruggles. Carl Ruggles music. Yes, Portals, and it says Arlington, Vermont. So, so what does that mean? I don't know. Well, I guess that's where he's from. To, oh, for Ruggles. Yeah, yeah, for Ruggles. Arlington, Vermont. Uh, then Ives' Third Symphony, and then finished with Harrison Motet for the Day of Ascension. Mm -hmm. So I know those last three pieces. Mm -hmm. And I think putting Ruggles with the Ives is, I mean, we've talked to it. Yes. <laughs> Love to do a class at some point on the grumpy men of American music. And you yes. put Ruggles and Ives right there together because they're just... <laughs> they danced around the table singing the Second Connecticut Regiment March Together and Harmony Ives, Charles's <laughs> wife, said, those boys, <laughs> they were dancing around. But yeah, so kind of an interesting group of pieces on there. So Ives wasn't there. Right. He was too sick. So mm -hmm. Harmony had to, his wife had to represent him. Um, and it just kind of took off. Everyone was fascinated by this piece and yeah. talking about this piece. And then it gets nominated in a very eclectic group <laughs> for the Pulitzer Prize for 1947. So we have the report. So Yeah. So it's time to go back to our good friend, Chalmers Clifton again, who... Uh, so he talks about how he recommends the award. Uh, so the three pieces were Ives' Symphony Three, John Carlo Minotti, The Medium, so opera, and we'll get a chance to talk about him quite a bit, he a did. couple times. And then Hindemith Symphonia Serena. This is a symphony of large dimension by one of the very distinguished contemporary composers, which has... Un unquestioned technical mastery. That's about what I think of. That's about what you think of it. Yeah. So what does he say about Ives? The committee says, this symphony, a work of great refinement, essential simplicity, and a striking originality of form, is one of the most important compositions of an American composer who has, of recent years, won wide acclaim and recognition as a neglected genius. Oh, so we're pulling the genius card pulling out here. Pulling the genius card about, for Ives. Yeah. Which is pretty impressive for someone mm -hmm. who had been neglected for... And had tried. Yes, he tried, he tried to have a career and was unable to in the 1890s. Yeah, he had big, big supporters. Nicholas Slonimsky was a yeah. big fan. He conducted the premiere of Washington's Birthday and some other pieces. He was there. Cowell, we talked about. Mm -hmm. So not only did Harrison uh, premiere the piece, but also another friend and supporter of Ives, Bernard Herrmann, who you're a big fan of, yeah. I know, as a film composer, uh, conducted it for broadcast right. too. So. This is, again, talking about big-name people who found something in this guy. Yeah, Bernard Herrmann actually would sneak away so he could hear rehearsals uh, when he was younger because he was so fascinated by what Ives was doing. Yeah. And that broadcast on CBS is one of the first ways the nation got to hear it because mm -hmm. it was a while before it was uh, actually recorded. Yeah. So he gets the... Uh, Pulitzer Prize, the 1947 <laughs> Pulitzer Prize. And I can't wait for this. Ives is not exactly ecstatic <laughs> at the recognition. Um, so in 1947, May 1947, he writes to Lou Harrison, uh, spelling it Harry Son. H-A-R-R-Y-S-O-N. Yep. And he says, as you are very much to blame for getting me into that Pulitzer Prize street and for having a bushel of letters to answer and for having a check of $500 thrown over me by the trustees of Columbia University, you have got to help me by taking half of this and the rest I'll send to New Music Edition and Aero Press. Mm -hmm. Not exactly the, no. what you expect to hear. No, not. I'm so grateful to, to the right. committee for this or that. And then, of course, one of his famous song, or famous phrases that we used in our proposal mm -hmm. for this whole podcast endeavor i've said uh in, in an interview 
you know, let's see here. He reportedly also in that same letter, he said, prizes are for boys. I'm grown up. <laughs> yeah. And talked about in an interview for the Bridgeport Sunday Herald, he described the prize as a badge of mediocrity. Which is pretty amazing. That's pretty great. That's our Charlie. That's... <laughs> but he was he was. What does it mean happy. that we're spending an entire podcast series looking at badges of mediocrity? Badges of mediocrity and for boys. Yeah, <laughs> I'm grown up. <laughs> but I think that's just Ives' tough exterior. I think right. he was happy, and especially that Lou Harrison helped him. Right. Uh, he gave him, like you said, gave him half the money and the credit. Well, we think in 1946, 1947, by that point, how much Ives had given to the music community, especially yeah. younger composers. And so this is in some way that community giving back yeah. and giving him this recognition. And even though he doesn't fit in the mold of the Pulitzer at this time, it's certainly well-deserved. Mm -hmm. So why don't we turn our attention now to the piece itself? Behind the Notes. So, Behind the Notes, when we're thinking about Ives, I think if you were to ask most undergraduates, what is Ives' style like and what do you expect in a piece by Ives, I would say the first thing they would guess is it's got tunes. Yeah, quotation. It's quotation, musical borrowing. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's and kind this... of what we focus on when we teach Ives to undergraduates is mm -hmm. almost to spot the tune. Yeah. And we definitely have that in this piece. It's uh, something that's, well, we'll get into the specifics about the piece itself in a moment, but it's an unusual piece because Ives is, he has four numbered symphonies. The first one is very much, uh, it was part of it, partly his graduation piece from mm -hmm. Yale, so it's in a total European style. The second one is a fusion of the European and American style. The fourth one is, a real Frankenstein. It's all over the piece place. <laughs> that's got everything cobbled together from all different places, and then this piece is. I just wasn't very that wasn't. Too, he was proud of it, but he also thought it was a step backwards in a way, because mm. it is very. It's more accessible in a lot of ways. Well, it's also I think difficult to even <clears throat> call it a symphony. So we have expectations yeah. when we hear symphony of you know we're kind of conditioned to think of Beethoven's symphony. This is not what's. No. going on here. Yeah, we've already mentioned that it's much smaller in terms of the number of people who are even playing it. It's only three movements, mm -hmm. and those movements don't follow any kind of standard form. No. It's no. really a descriptive memory that he's put to music, which is why I think most people would know it as the camp meeting as opposed to <laughs> symphony number three. Exactly, exactly. So what is a camp meeting? So that for that, we have to go back to the, the Second Great Awakening and the whole kind of history of uh, Christianity as it spreads through the United States. Um, but in the Second Great Awakening, we have this growth of people gathering, just thousands of people. We talk about tens of thousands of people gathering together to hear preaching, to sing together and hear testimonies. And that's really those uh, revival meetings are kind of what spread Christianity across most of what was known of the United States, both South and North. Um, and Ives attended some of these camp meetings when he was a kid. And yeah. I give you an idea of how current this is. I was, you know, I grew up a Southern Baptist kid in Arkansas. My grandfather was a Southern Baptist minister. I attended revival meetings as a kid that would go on for several nights. And during those revival meetings, we would all sing hymns together. We'd have wow. preaching. We've had testimony. That this tradition continues all the way down to today. So yeah. Ives is going as a you know a 
four-year-old kid yeah. going to one of these massive meetings in Reading, Connecticut. It's 1878. And his father, who, as we just mentioned, was the town musician, he's getting up there and he's leading the singing. Yep. And so this is a great quote that he has from his memos where he kind of describes what it was like. He said, I remember when I was a boy at the outdoor camp meeting services in Reading, all the farmers, their families and field hands for miles around would come afoot in their farm wagons. Remember how the great waves of sound used to come through the trees when things like Beulah Land, Woodworth, <laughs> Nearer My God to Thee, The Shining Shore, Nettleton, and The Sweet By and By and the like were sung by thousands of let out souls. The music notes and words on paper were about as much as they, about as much as like, ugh. <laughs> The music notes and words on paper were about as much like that were uh, at those moments as the monogram on a man's necktie may be like his face. Father who led the singing, sometimes with his cornet or voice, sometimes with both voice and arms, and sometimes in the quieter hymns of the French horn or violin, would always encourage the people to sing their own way. Yep. That's the key. That's the key. That's Yes, and that's that's one of the things that people sometimes don't understand about Ives is he, in fact, he writes on one of his manuscripts, he says, don't change the notes, the wrong notes are right. Right, and so he's trying to evoke and and kind of capture that mm-hmm. experience of the the untrained people, the masses, ten thousand people singing yeah. a hymn together. Yeah, so you're going to have people who are embellishing it their own way. Yep. You got people who be like, I don't want to sing it that way. I'm going to sing it this way. Some yeah. voices sticking out, and some voices you can barely hear but still there. I mean, mm-hmm. the, he intonation calls it all over all the over the place. Yeah. Right, the 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 great conclave of humanity, yeah. as he calls it, yeah. with this idea of uh, singing the music your own way. And if you throw the poet around, it's so much the better for the music and the lyrics, right? That's right. That's right. And keep in mind, too, that Ives was an organist, as I mentioned earlier. So he's very familiar with this music as, as a performer, too. Mm-hmm. We're playing every week in church and all these hymn tunes, which makes a huge appearance in his music. Uh, and this is this is kind of the hymn symphony. It is. It's, it's all, all hymns. hymns. And as you mentioned, it's in three movements uh, with descriptive titles, too. Old Folks Gatherin'. Gatherin'. Rin. <laughs> yes. Got to drop it off like a politician would say, Missouri. Uh, old Folks Gatherin', Children's Day, and Communion. So kind of giving you the states of this event. Mm-hmm. So everybody's showing up and then gathering, doing our thing, our singing, our talking. The kids are playing. And then it ends in a very serious way with, communion, remembering the spirit of why you're there. Right. And it's also interesting that we usually think of a symphony starting with a bang, mm-hmm. right? You get everyone's attention, and then you can have the slow movements, and then you're going to end with a bang, so everyone feels uplifted, and Ives inverts that completely. Yeah. So we start, everyone gathering, it's kind of, it starts slow, and you hear the the warm-up of more, more people gathering. Mm-hmm. The children's day, right? You're watching the children play, so it's the upbeat Fast the light movement. one. Yeah. yeah. And then the communion is beautiful and transcendent and slow and all these kinds of things, but that's how you end. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the new recordings, in fact, I like to recommend a new recording uh, by Michael Tilson Thomas, who's one of the most significant and important and huge advocates of Ives. He recorded all the symphonies several times. Uh, there's a new recording by the San Francisco Symphony that since he's stepping down of symphony number three and four, and the choir actually records a lot of the hymn tunes here. So we have, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, mm-hmm. There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, Happy Land, and Just As I Am are all recorded in, in here. So you can hear the tunes before you actually hear them in the piece. So strongly recommended to get that context. Well, and that's the other thing about Ives is, so now 
1947, they were talking 35 years from its composition. Now we're talking 120 years from its composition. And the world that he's depicting, and even in the early 20th century when he was depicting a world that even at that point was 25 years gone. So understanding these hymns, putting them into that mindset where we know the hymns and, and the people who were, he would have intended to hear it in initially, would have known these hymns, they would have known the situation, they would have known the setting, and it would have had this intense, I imagine, feeling of nostalgia for mm-hmm. them. There's this huge remove. So I think for us to understand Ives, mm-hmm. in some ways, it's good for us to know those hymns and to be able to hear them as they appear and as they interact so that you actually, they become characters over the drama of the symphony. That's an excellent point. And when I just finished teaching the Ives seminar last semester, and I asked, because obviously you talk about musical borrowing a lot. There's whole books on it. Uh, I say, how many of you students know these songs? And almost none of them know any of the hymn tunes. Mm-hmm. But then I said, how important is that? And then after we'd learned them, and they said, oh, it actually is very important to know, you know the context or know where these came from and what type of pieces they are. And so it, it's good. And then they start to get into it. And, oh, tell me more about what a friend we have in Jesus or something, and you start to see the importance of the context. Well, and especially coming out of the Great Awakening, one of the changes was to move to hymnody that was increasingly personal. Yeah. It's all yeah. about, there's Blood. a lot more I, <laughs> and there's a lot more of me being saved and me being this and my relationship and all those kinds of things. And so that then is translated onto this camp meeting mm-hmm. that it's creating that sense of the personal relationship that the individual is having with their creator, right? That kind of... Mm relationship. And so if you know, just as I am, which is, yeah. I mean, I is even in the title, yes, but it's just as I am, I'm coming just like I am, and you're accepting me just like I am. Mm-hmm. And knowing that gives an added dimension to the, the story that's being portrayed here. Fascinating. And even more fascinating, the way that he takes those tunes right. is not, it's not just a, it would be too simplistic. It'd be like a, a, a baby trying to do it. I and mean, he doesn't just play the tune straight. It's always a little bit tweaked or you get fragments or especially in the last movement it's really Mm -hmm. fragmented at the beginning and then you get the full statement and we call cumulative form uh it it he's playing with your perception of these hymns and giving you a sense of the atmosphere and right and yeah it doesn't why don't we listen to a little bit of the end of the first movement we had talked about this where the solo trombone is going to come in with the theme and you can hear all these little uh, snippets of the hymns as they appear all kind of stacked up together as people are finally coming together for the service. So maybe we look at the second movement, the Children's Day, which is the much more light movement. It is, but yet it uses a tune that Ives loved a lot, there is a fountain filled with blood, which right. makes a big appearance in uh, in General William Booth enters into heaven. You hear it, and in other different places, uh, Happy Land, Naomi. There's music in the air, and it's a lot of these great tunes. It's more upbeat, and mm-hmm. there is I, form is difficult. It's, it is hard to follow Ives because he doesn't, unlike our previous composers, doesn't use traditional. It never goes of, where you expect it no, to. No, no, it doesn't. And even in this one, it's pretty light and and lively, but it is more narrative, maybe mm-hmm. a way to describe what's going on. It's kind of giving you a picture, a window of what it's like to be there. And that that type of style, did that seem to be out during 
the forties. I mean, think of late forties here. We're thinking of very formally trained composers like Copeland and a lot of the people who have won the Pulitzer up until now, they are people who grew up through the movement that's now called neoclassicism, mm -hmm. but going back to those forms and those very strict kind of constructions. And so here Ives comes and he's from before that time period. And retro. He's like, you know, I'll just do whatever I want, whatever makes sense to construct the world that I want. I mean, it's, it's much more like a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Even though this piece is fairly conservative in terms of its materials and the the most radical thing is probably the ending which yeah. you can yeah the last movement is a mentioned a cumulative form where you get bits of just as i am without one plea and then it's just fragmented throughout and then eventually everything kind of stops it's a, a gorgeous it's moment uh it stops and you'll hear the cellos come in with the actual tune da 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 di da 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 and it's played throughout. Meanwhile, you've got all this atmospheric stuff happening, and and it ends with the bells kind of coming in and chiming the end of the camp meeting. It's just transcendent, like you've said before. Yeah, so maybe we should listen to that. I just love those those bells almost inaudibly tolling away in the background and yeah. just the I mean it just kind of you know are exactly sure when it ends it just kind of trails off and it's just it's I mean in some ways I mean this is what Ives is going for I think but it's it's almost a spiritual experience mm -hmm. just to have that kind of um very soft floating kind of ending yeah and this is a common thing in Ives's music there's a, a mm -hmm. phenomenon called shadow lines mm -hmm. that he's we're in this piece and then scratched out and put back in uh, but you'll have these things bubbling under the surface that are always there so it's one violinist kind of going off on their own or just playing something softly or bells coming in here and there and it's just it's evocative it's really giving you an atmosphere of just eternity in, in a lot mm -hmm. of ways just this cyclic everything just keeps going and ah it's very so powerful. So, yeah, so it really well is a, a, an amazing uh, journey that the music takes you on. And I do agree that this is one of the more accessible of Ives' music. Some of his music can get very dissonant yes. and can get very harsh. Um, it's no less powerful for that. Uh, and it was part and parcel of how he viewed music and how it should work. But this is something that I think anyone who's like, oh, I'm kind of interested in Ives, this is a great kind of entry yeah. point. And I think that's one of the reasons why it was um, so easily could win the Pulitzer because it is something that anyone can understand and kind of get into. So maybe we should talk about what happened after 1947 with this piece of music. Hit or miss. All right. Do I even have to ask, is this a hit or a miss for you, Dave? Well. <laughs> a big miss. A big miss. <laughs> Terrible piece. Don't ever play it again. No, it's uh, interestingly, the reception of the piece afterwards 
uh, Ives, it shocked Ives's friends and peers. And I have some quotes from the memos and from the critical edition. Max Smith, who was a uh, Yale graduate from Ives's period, as well as a music critic, said, I played over the third symphony. This is Ives saying, I played over the third symphony and Max asked me how I had got so modern. <laughs> After Ives played over some other pieces like parts of Putnam's Camp, Hawthorne, and the fourth symphony, far more modern, Smith responded, the first one was bad enough, but these were awful. How can you compose horrible sounds like that? And it's even worse than you were 10 years ago. For that the Yale Club in 1901 or two, I showed Max a movement that arranged that I oh that uh, that arranged for orchestra from an organ piece, and he got wild. <laughs> so, yeah. I, then uh, another friend of Ives visited him, and I got him to play over the first violin part of the third movement of the Third Symphony. Ives got mixed up and called it NG, no good. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's clearly wrong, and Ives. Uh, yeah, it's it's not my personal favorite of his symphonies, but it for all the reasons you described and for its musical innovations and interest, it is a very worthy piece. And it goes to the question we were we had a visitor this morning, uh, Dr. Catherine Preston from College of William and Mary, American music scholar, and I asked her why why are these pieces not played from, you know, these are very accessible type of pieces in by American orchestras. And she was talking about 19th century music, but this too, there's no reason why this couldn't be played. It's not going to get people out of the hall. I mean, I hear a lot more contemporary music mm -hmm. that sounds much more difficult. But it seems to me that amongst Ives um, output for symphony, this and probably the three places in New England are what I'm more likely to see programmed mm. than, say, the Fourth Symphony. Well, yes. <laughs> or the First true. Symphony. So in, in terms of Ives' orchestral output, I think it does have more legs than uh, other pieces of his. There are a lot of recordings. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm just, I, I just think every orchestra needs to play you something. You think Ives every single every season Every year would be fine. needs something. Yeah, <laughs> every, something every would be needs, nice. needs Ives. Yeah. But in but, terms of the the ones that we've looked at so far, I think this is second only to Appalachian Spring in terms of mm. the reception and the people knowing this piece. Yes, it that's didn't disappear true. into the ether like <laughs> maybe Leo Sowerby did. Correct, correct. Yes, that's true. And how much of that do you think is is the fact that Ives' story was so captivating? Oh, I think absolutely, and, that's a part of it. Yeah, and because this piece has a story that you can kind of mm. latch onto, mm -hmm. so it's not esoteric it's very down home and it's very american so if you're yeah. looking at a piece that sounds american this is one that's going to sound american that's true right down to its inspiration and its yep. materials yeah there's nothing european i mean the arc of the forces but right not not the actual musical material so yes definitely a hit and uh, <laughs> uh just interesting it did a lot for ives as i mentioned in kind of looking at where it went it brought him into this is a case where the winning the award does mm -hmm. bring you some publicity and made Bernst, Leonard Bernstein interested and many other people got involved in performing Ives and bringing so him out of So this is the, one of the great things about prizes like this. Yeah. Is that it does bring recognition to people 
who might not otherwise have recognition, even if prizes are for boys. <laughs> He's I'm all grown, grown up. up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Charles E. Ives' Third Symphony. And we'll post some pictures <laughs> of Dave <laughs> in front of Ives' house and maybe of his grand... <laughs> Ives Tour. Ives, Ives Tour 2020. <laughs> also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links and trivia between episodes. And finally, join us next episode when we'll be exploring another third symphony, this time by Walter Piston. Until then, keep listening. Mm-hmm.